So this morning we are looking at Hebrews 12, 14 through 18. where we read, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Lord, we ask that you would nourish us and feed us this morning on your good word. That you would encourage us. That you would strengthen us. That you would call us to uh, behave as adults. (coughs) People who love you and who press on after you with the energy that you give us each day. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As the book of Hebrews presses on, as it it moves forward from chapter 1, it's urging urging genuine faith in Jesus. And as it does that, it often appeals to the individual, as we see in in much of Scripture. But the, the church is not a, uh, an isolated gathering of individuals. The church is a, an organism. It's the body of Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus the first time, when you trusted him, when you were born again, the Holy Spirit took you and placed you within the body of Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 both about the, the inherent unity of the church. Ephesians 4 says we don't have to create that unity. It's already been given to us. What, what we do is we, we seek to not divide it. We seek to not destroy it. Well, as, as we look at these verses, we, we see a couple of points. We see a personal command, but then we also see a, a mutual concern. So let's, let's begin with the, the personal command in verse 14 pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the lord the word pursue means to strive after it means to chase after in fact in other verses it's translated as persecute it means that we hunt something down with the intention of catching it and the point is that our faith is not meant to be passive. It's meant to be active. The Lord calls us to be participants, eager participants, in our own growth, in, in our own maturity. Uh, if I can put it this way, he calls us to put our backs into our faith as well as our hearts. He calls us to pursue peace. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of relationship. There are 7.7 billion people alive right now. I can say that I am at peace with the overwhelming majority of them if peace means there's no conflict. But in the course of, of my life, I don't know. What, what do you think we, we, we know from personal sight or the faces or the names of, of maybe 1,000 people, maybe 1,500 people? That's who he's talking about. It's, it's pursuing peace with those who are in the sphere 
of your life. So Romans 12 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We are to pursue peace with all. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could actually achieve it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually have peace with all? That's not guaranteed because it requires the, the other person's involvement in that. That's why Paul says in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with others. We're to make the effort to be at peace with all, to keep ourselves available to them, to care for them with love, with godly tenderness, with faithfulness, to be faithful as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you need an example of showing peace to those who have not behaved as your friends, you don't need to look any further than the Lord Jesus Christ. In the space of of 18 hours or less... Jesus was betrayed by one friend, he was denied by another, and he was abandoned by the rest. After his resurrection, Luke writes, they were gathered together in a room, I think it probably, I think it probably was the same upper room, and Jesus suddenly was there with them, and it says in Luke 24 that they were startled, they were terrified, they thought that he was a ghost. Jesus didn't rebuke them for their sin. Instead, he said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Is it possible for us, on our own, to have peace with all? No. Is it possible for us, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, and those who are more mature, who love us, who encourage us, to have peace? Yes. It takes a work of God. If we name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, though, we must pursue peace as we are commanded to here. The second personal command is to pursue sanctification. Sanctification uh, is, is basically a, a verbal form of the word holy. It's the same word, it's just in a verb form instead of a noun form. We don't have holification. If there was such a word in English as holification, we wouldn't say sanctify, we would say holify. That's the sense. Sanctification means being completely dedicated and consecrated to the Lord. It's not just good behavior, it is being set apart, it's being dedicated, devoted to something. To be sanctified in Christ means to live as one who is holy to the Lord. To live as one that he has set apart for his glory, for his honor, for his righteousness. It's not just avoiding sin. It's pursuing righteousness and Christ-likeness. That means living in purity. It means keeping ourselves from spiritual and physical defilement. It means pursuing the holiness of Christ. I think it's really important that we understand that, that uh, while sanctification is necessary for salvation, no one will see the Lord without it. We don't sanctify ourselves. Hebrews 10 says, By this will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you're standing before God as a saint, which is 
A person who has been sanctified is a saint. Not a person that the church votes on. Not a person that a group of people decides was especially good. Anybody that God has set his favor on, his grace on, called his own, given his name, given the holiness of Christ, is a saint. That's why Paul frequently addresses his letters to the saints. We have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus. So just as a reminder, salvation itself begins with justification. It begins with the forgiveness of sin. It begins with our being born again. Uh, Justification is the work of God alone in which we are declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ himself. Whatever Jesus did, whatever righteousness he earned in the course of his life, whatever good things he did, whatever obedience he had, whatever faithfulness he showed to the Father is imputed to you when you believe in his name. It's given to you as a credit to your account, as though you had lived that life from beginning to end. It's not something that can be lost. It's completely a work of God. Those initial acts of salvation, justification, the forgiveness of sin, being identified with Christ, they'll never be repeated. But that's okay because they never need to be repeated. They're permanent. They have a permanent effect. Sanctification begins the moment salvation begins. That is the work of God alone by which we are made holy in practice And in life, we begin to live according to the righteousness of Christ the moment that we're saved. We begin to recognize sin, we confess it, we repent of it, we recognize the the, the sin and the power of of sin in our flesh within us from the moment that we get saved. We begin to see the need that others have for the gospel. We begin to respond to others with gentleness and with tenderness where before we might have responded with criticism or harshness. All of this is the, the work of God in our lives. We do not sanctify ourselves. Rather, we pursue the sanctification that the Lord is working within us as our life goes on. It's an ongoing process of God that we seek. The final state, just to finish that out, is glorification. That's the work of God alone, where we are completely transformed into the perfect image of Jesus Christ in his glorified humanity. Now, the promise of Scripture is that every single person who is justified will go through the process of sanctification, and every person who is justified and goes through the process of sanctification will be glorified. You can't lose it. If the Lord has justified you, he will glorify you. That's the promise that we have. That's the guarantee that we have. None of it is dependent on us. That's the personal command. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. But somebody famous once said, no man, no woman is an island. We don't exist for our own selves. We exist for the sake of others as well. Now, the world itself will acknowledge this when we look at parents and children, when we look at relationships, when we look at marriage. We understand that somebody who is purely selfish, purely self-interested, even in the most sinful corners of the world, is rejected. The person who has no time, no thought for anybody but themselves is not praiseworthy in our world. Especially in Christ, we are to ensure 
very basically in a very simple way that no one is left behind. And so we have the remaining verses 15 through 17 that all stem from the same three words. See to it. See to it. That's a command that's given to you and I and it has uh, three phrases, three clauses that come from it. First of all, see to it that no one falls short or comes short of the grace of God. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. To come short of something means to miss it. It means to lack it. We've already seen this word a number of months ago in in Hebrews 4, where the writer says, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. That is, we should be afraid if somebody seems to be coming short of salvation. We should be afraid that somebody who thinks that they're right with God, but actually isn't, is going to miss the gospel. We should be afraid for those that we know and that we love who are beginning to make decisions that take them away from Christ. Can a genuine believer fall away from Christ? No, not permanently, not eternally. Why should we be concerned then? Well, we should be concerned then because of the glory of God. We should be concerned because of the suffering and the discipline that they'll face in their own lives. And we should be afraid that somebody who has made a claim of being a, of being a Christian actually isn't. And as we see them begin to drift, as we see their initial commitment to a religious life fade, rather than shrugging, we should, we should fear. We should intervene to the best of our, to the best of our ability. See, Hebrews 4.1 and Hebrews 12.15 don't allow anybody to say, it's none of my business. It is your business. If you're part of the body of Christ and somebody else claims to be a part of the body of Christ, our lives are our mutual business. So the very idea that someone could have merely adopted a religious culture or tradition and not actually come into Christ through faith should shake us. It should frighten us. Jesus himself says in Matthew that there are going to be many who who point to their religious behavior and he says, I will declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So we're commanded to do our part to ensure that no one is left behind. We're commanded to continue to declare the promise of the gospel to those who seem to be coming short of the grace of God. The second, we're to see to it that no bitter root, no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. This isn't just a command to avoid bitterness, although we should avoid bitterness. Bitterness is a sin. Unforgiveness is a sin. They're terrible sins. They're devastating to the soul. When they're released, they're devastating to others. But see, roots can't be seen. Somebody in here could have a root of bitterness and we would never know because it's a root. It's not until it actually comes above ground 
And until the, like the old hymn says, kind of in, par- in parallel, first the blade, then the something, and then the, and then the ear full of corn. I can't remember the hymn. The whole the whole growth of the plant. Linda, uh, we've tried several times this year to, to kind of have a, an indoor herb garden, and we've managed to kill quite a number of seeds. And we we finally got some bigger. Uh, Kind of, kind of aluminum or, or steel pots, and we planted the seeds. And, and some of them, boy, they just kind of, they just came up really quickly. And there were a few others we were worrying about and looking at every day. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing that little thing in there. Well, roots of bitterness can't be seen. We're not commanded to ensure that no one has a root of bitterness. We're to ensure that if there is a root of bitterness that springs up that makes itself known that it doesn't cause trouble or defile anyone else. Bitterness and unforgiveness are deeply personal, but they're usually not content to remain private. They usually insist on making themselves public. And I I wish that bitterness and unforgiveness in my own life was, was like a giant sequoia in California where it, it, it takes an enormous event of a fire to burst the cone and spread it. But the truth is, bitterness and unforgiveness are like dandelions. And once they're there, it just takes the slightest breeze and those seeds go everywhere. Two results of bitterness are trouble in the church and the defile, defilement of many. The word trouble has a broad range. It can mean basic annoyance and it can mean deep suffering. And when somebody releases bitterness into a group, you'll often see both extremes. You'll see people who are just annoyed, and you'll see people who suffer as a result for various reasons. The entire congregation is to guard against that. The second result is the defilement of many. The bitter person might just say, well, I have the right to my opinion. I don't necessarily know that that's true. There are opinions that are vile and that are wicked. And no Christian has a right to an opinion that's contradictory to the Lord. But even even if someone does have the right to their opinion, they don't have a right to poison others with it or to cause others to stumble or fall. We've seen in our own lives, in in our marriage, the danger of what we call a second-hand offense. And that's where somebody says something or does something that hurts Linda. And because they've done something that hurts my wife, I take it personally. You know, there's no way for me to come clean with that person. There's no way for me to forgive that person. Even if Linda gets right with them, it didn't involve me. I simply observed it. And now, if I don't forgive it before the Lord, if I don't release it back to him, I have a root growing against that person and it won't take long before that root becomes public see we are to see to it that no root of bitterness that springs up causes trouble or defiles people we have to protect the body and third we are to see to it that no one is immoral or godless see to it that there be no immoral (coughs) excuse me See to it that there be no immoral or godless person by Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it 
with tears. Esau was a man who worshipped his own appetites and desires. He gave up his birthright for a bowl of stew and some bread. He traded it to his brother Jacob. It's possible for any Christian, for any one of us, to trade a life of holiness, a life of meaning, for a single moment of pleasure, for a single moment of contentment. When I was still in seminary, I went to to Talbot. Talbot is the theological seminary that's attached to Biola University. There was a radio program at the time called the Biola Hour. And the speaker on the Biola Hour uh, was a a local pastor of a a well-known historic church. And during my, my, the, the end of my, my first year, it was discovered that he had been carrying on an adulterous relationship with his secretary for 13 years. 13 years. Building a megachurch. It was only broken off because she got married and she told him that the relationship was going to end and, and he insisted it wasn't going to end. And she went to the elders. He was replaced by another local pastor who we knew uh, by by better reputation, a, a fantastic teacher. We knew people who went to his church. And within six months, it was revealed that he had had an affair. And the Biola Hour is a radio program. I don't know if it ever came back, but it went away. These men who had... A responsibility before the Lord as Christians to live in obedience and sanctification, to love their wives and to be devoted to them. Traded the rest of their lives, really, for little bits of pleasure. That's what Esau did. We're to see to it that nobody does that. Esau had it his way for a while, but eventually his sin caught up to him. He realized what it had cost him, and by that time it was too late to repent. He sought repentance, a place for repentance with tears, but he didn't find any place. Now here's the thing, being sorry about what you did isn't repentance. Feeling bad about what you did isn't repentance. 2 Corinthians says this, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, with leading to salvation. Without regret there means that you don't regret the sorrow. The sorrow that God gives leads to a repentance that doesn't regret the sorrow that God gave. It's grateful for the suffering. It's grateful for the pain. It's grateful for the reminder of your sin that led you to cry out to the Lord for forgiveness and cleansing. And that leads to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that this is going to cost me. I'm sorry that this is hard for me. We've seen people even in the media who get caught doing one thing or another, and they... They portray themselves as the victim because there's consequences for their actions. 
Esau experienced worldly sorrow. He was sorry that he had lost his inheritance. He was sorry that he was left without anything. He grieved that Jacob got what he should have received. But there was no place for him to repent. It was too late. A lot of people think that they can get right with God later. They can get right on their own time when it, when it suits them. They have an opportunity today to be godly, but they, they refuse. I'll repent later. I'll devote myself to God later. I'll live for him later. I've got my whole life to live. And they never stop to think later may never come. Later may not come because death interrupts their life. It may come sooner than expected. Later may never come because the Lord may just give them over to their sin. Later may never come because when later comes, they won't care to live for God. Somebody might say, well, the Lord wouldn't reject someone who is genuinely sorry. Yes, he would. He did with Esau. He did with Esau. That's why Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Why count on later? Why presume that today doesn't matter, that what you do today doesn't matter, and that a day when it matters is coming, and you'll recognize that day, and you'll be prepared to act on that day? Rather, encourage one another day after today, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And when we see Christians whose lives are marked by immorality, sexual immorality, godlessness, we must call them to repent. We must continue to present them with the gospel. Not that they're not saved, but the gospel isn't meant just for unbelievers. The gospel is the, the, the bedrock of our lives in Christ. We continue to preach it to one another because we continue to need it. We continue to need the reminder that we're loved, that there is a Savior, that, that there is hope for us to grow from today into tomorrow and the day after that. As we bring this home, why are we called to live an energetic life pursuing peace and sanctification because this life isn't a game it's not a test it's not a simulation it's for real it's not a demo what we do here how we live before the lord in sanctification how we live with others in peace matters for all eternity beyond that we all have the same uh, the same number of days to live I don't know if you realize that. You have the same number of days to live that I do. You have between today and the day of your death. The same number. The count will be different. But you and I have the same period of time remaining. We don't know how long that period of time is going to be. What I know is that I don't want to wake up tomorrow and look back at today and think, I wish. I could have, but I didn't. I could have taken advantage of better time, better decisions, better choices. 
I want to be able to look back at today and say I pursued holiness. I pursued sanctification. I want to look back to it today and say I, I didn't see anyone left behind. If I see somebody, if I hear of someone, I prayed for them, I reached out to them, I encouraged them. Just one more day. Sometimes it's just one more day. Sometimes it's just one more hour. There were a few weeks right after the the major cancer surgery that I had where I was in so much pain and I I was on such tremendous amounts of, of pain medicine that Every, two hour, every three hours I was taking two Percocets. It's quite a lot of drugs. And by the end of the second hour, I was in agony, and I had an hour to wait. And I would watch the second hand on our clock. We had a clock about like that. It was sitting on the, the other wall in the living room, and I'd sit there, and I'd watch the second hand. Just like I'm watching the second hand, and I would just think, I can wait till it gets to, to zero. And then it would, it would get to 12, and I'd think, okay, I can wait one more minute. And I got through those hours of pain a minute at a time, a second at a time. Sometimes what we need to say to our brothers and sisters who are struggling isn't get up, dust yourself off, and live the rest of your life with energy. Sometimes we, what we need to say is you can do another hour. You can be faithful another hour. You can pray one more minute. You can stand in Christ today. Let's not worry about tomorrow. Let's let tomorrow worry about itself. Somebody said that somewhere. We can do that for each other. If you know a Christian who is bitter, who is engaging in immorality or godlessness, if you're concerned about them drifting, won't you pray for them? Won't you lift them up before the Lord as He stands interceding? Won't you bring them before them Bring them before him in, in urgency, desiring their good. You might even pray about speaking to them yourself and ask for the right words and ask for the simplicity of speech. But I, I can tell you, it doesn't get much more complicated than Jesus bore their sin entirely. And they don't have to bear it anymore. Jesus bore their guilt and their shame, and they don't have to bear it anymore. If guilt and shame wears you down right now, you don't have to bear it anymore. Jesus carried it on the cross. Cut it loose. To repent means to... Cut the straps on that backpack that's full of death, that's full of shame, that's full of sin, and just let it fall and then go to him. I have to remind myself that weekly, sometimes daily, nobody speaks from a a position of perfection except God himself. And as you have received help from others, as others have loved you and patiently stood with you, as you trusted, as you learned, you can do that for them. We can do that for each other. 
In all of this, we entrust ourselves to the Lord. We don't speak in pride because apart from the grace of God, any one of us could find ourselves committing any sin. We speak and we love and we pray as those who have been rescued and redeemed so that no one is left behind. Father, we thank you. We thank you for one another. Lord, there's, there's no question that to most Christians, other Christians are the greatest irritant they know. That's not because of those other Christians. It's because of ourselves. We thank you for the justification that you bring to your people. We thank you for the sanctification that you work. Teach us to cooperate with that. Teach us to live within the sanctification that you have given us. Keep reminding us, Lord, about the glorification to come. Lord, let Jesus stand large in our sight. Crucified, resurrected. Interceding, not just for us, but for me. Interceding for us as his church, for us as a congregation And for each one of us as his people. (coughs) Lord, strengthen our hearts to serve one another today. Strengthen us to be served and to be willing to listen and ready to listen. And we ask you that none of us would be like Esau. We ask you, Lord, to keep pressing us on by your spirit to pursue peace and sanctification. And we thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.